This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of phalanx fractures from the hand section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Phalanx fractures are common hand injuries that involve the proximal, middle, or distal phalanx. Diagnosis can be confirmed with orthogonal radiographs of the involved digit. Treatment involves immobilization or surgical fixation depending on location, severity, and alignment of injury. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, phalanx fractures are the most common injuries to the skeletal system and accounts for 10% of all fractures. In terms of demographics, phalanx fractures are more common in males in a 2 to 1 ratio. In terms of location, the distal phalanx is most commonly affected, then the middle phalanx, then the proximal phalanx. Note that the small finger is most commonly affected and accounts for 38% of all hand fractures. With respect to etiology, in terms of pathophysiology, the mechanism of injury for a phalanx fracture depends on age. In the 10 to 29-year-old cohort, sports is the most common. In the 40 to 69-year-old cohort, machinery is the most common. And in the greater than 70-year-old cohort, falls are the most common. Associated conditions include nail bed injuries, which are associated with distal phalanx fractures. Moving on to the presentation of phalanx fractures, on physical exam, inspection may reveal tenderness, swelling, deformity, crepitus, and be sure to look for open wounds. As far as motion evaluation, assess for scissoring of the digits, which indicates a rotational component and you can assess via tenodesis. Neurovascular evaluation should assess for numbness indicating digital nerve injury and also be sure to assess for digital artery injury via Doppler. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a PA, lateral, and oblique. Findings in the proximal phalanx can be apex volar angulation due to the proximal fragment being pulled into flexion by the interossei and the distal fragment being pulled into extension by the central slip. Findings in the middle phalanx can include apex volar angulation if distal to the FDS insertion and apex dorsal angulation if proximal to the FDS insertion. As far as the diagnosis of phalanx fractures, know that diagnosis is confirmed by history, physical exam, and radiographs. Now, let's talk about proximal phalanx fractures in a bit more detail. The classification can be divided into head fractures, neck-slash-shaft fractures, and base fractures. Head fractures can be further classified into three types. Type 1 is stable with no displacement, type 2 is unstable unicondylar fractures, and type 3 is unstable bicondylar or comminuted fractures. Neck-slash-shaft fractures can be classified as transverse, short oblique, long oblique, or spiral. The deformity is usually apex volar angulation, and note that the proximal fragment inflection is due to the deforming forces of the interossei, and the distal fragment in extension is due to the deforming forces of the central slip. Note that base fractures can be divided into extraarticular and intraarticular fractures are usually of the lateral base. Treatment of proximal phalanx fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes buddy taping versus splinting. This is indicated for extraarticular fractures with less than 10 degrees of angulation or less than 2 millimeters of shortening and no rotational deformity. Another indication is non-displaced intraarticular fractures. The technique will involve three weeks of immobilization followed by aggressive motion. Operative options include CRPP versus ORIF. Indications include extraarticular fractures with greater than 10 degrees of angulation or greater than 2 millimeters of shortening or rotational deformity. Other indications include displaced intraarticular fractures as well as unstable or irreducible fracture patterns. Surgical techniques can involve crossed K-wires, Eaton-Belsky pinning through the metacarpal head, as well as mini-fragment fixation with plate and or lag screws. Note that lag screws alone are indicated in the presence of a long oblique fracture. Now let's talk about middle phalanx fractures in a bit more detail. 
These can be classified as head fractures, neck fractures, shaft fractures, and base fractures. Head fractures can be further classified into three types. Type 1 is stable with no displacement, type 2 is unstable unicondylar, and type 3 is unstable bicondylar or comminuted. In neck fractures, the deformity is usually apex volar angulation, and the proximal fragment will be in flexion due to the FDS, and the distal fragment will be in extension due to the terminal tendon. Shaft fractures can be transverse, short oblique, long oblique, or spiral. Deformity can be apex volar angulation if distal to the FDS insertion, apex dorsal angulation if proximal to the FDS insertion, and without angulation due to inherent stability provided by an intact and prolonged FDS insertion. In the setting of base fractures, know that the deformity is usually apex dorsal angulation. The proximal fragment will be in extension due to the central slip, and the distal fragment will be in flexion due to the FDS. Base fractures can be further classified into partial articular fractures or complete articular fractures. Partial articular fractures can be of the volar base, dorsal base, or lateral base. Volar base partial articular fractures result from hyperextension injury or axial loading, and represents avulsion of the volar plate, and are unstable if greater than 40% of the articular surface is involved. Dorsal base partial articular fractures results from hyperflexion injury and represents avulsion of the central tendon. Lateral base partial articular fractures represent avulsion of the collateral ligaments. Finally, complete articular fractures are known as pilon fractures and are unstable in all directions. Treatment of middle phalanx fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes buddy taping versus splinting, which is indicated for extra-articular fractures with less than 10 degrees of angulation or less than 2 millimeters of shortening and no rotational deformity. Other indications include non-displaced intra-articular fractures. The technique for non-operative management of middle phalanx fractures includes three weeks of immobilization followed by aggressive motion. Operative options include CRPP versus ORIF. This is indicated for extra-articular fractures with greater than 10 degrees of angulation or greater than 2 millimeters of shortening or rotational deformity. Other indications include displaced intra-articular fractures and irreducible or unstable fracture patterns. The surgical technique can involve crossed K-wires, extension block pinning, collateral recess pinning, mini-fragment fixation with plate and or lag screws, and volar plate arthroplasty. Now let's talk about distal phalanx fractures in a bit more detail. Know that distal phalanx fractures are the most common phalanx fracture. As far as the classification, these can be further subdivided into tuft fractures, shaft fractures, base fractures, and Seymour fractures. As far as tuft fractures, the mechanism is usually a crush injury. These are usually stable due to the nail plate dorsally and pulp volarly, and is often associated with laceration of the nail matrix or pulp. Shaft fractures can be transverse or longitudinal. Base fractures are usually unstable. The mechanism can be shearing due to axial load leading to fracture involving greater than 20% of the articular surface. The mechanism can also be avulsion due to tensile force of the terminal tendon or FDP leading to small avulsion fracture. This can be further classified into volar base and dorsal base. Seymour fractures involve epiphyseal injury of the distal phalanx and results from hyperflexion. It also presents as a mallet deformity, for example apex dorsal, due to the terminal tendon that attaches to the proximal epiphyseal fragment, and the FDP attaches to the distal fragment. Treatment of distal phalanx fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management involves close reduction plus or minus splinting, which is indicated in most cases. Know that the nail matrix may be incarcerated in the fracture and blocks reduction. Operative options include removing the nail, repairing the nail bed, and replacing the nail to maintain the epinicule fold. Indications include distal phalanx fractures with nail bed injury. Be sure to listen to the podcast about nail bed injury for more detail.
CRPP versus RIF is indicated for displaced or irreducible shaft fractures, dorsal base fractures with greater than 25% articular involvement, displaced volar base fractures with a large fragment and involvement of the FDP, and non-unions. The technique for CRPP versus RIF can involve longitudinal or crossed K-wires, extension block pinning, as well as mini-fragment fixation with lag screws. Complications of phalanx fractures include loss of motion, malunion, and nonunion. Loss of motion is the most common complication, and predisposing factors include prolonged immobilization, associated joint injury, and extensive surgical dissection. Be sure to treat these patients with the rehab and surgical release as a last resort. Now, let's end this review session talking about some surgical complications. The ones to know include loss of motion, malunion, and nonunion. Loss of motion is the most common complication. Predisposing factors include prolonged immobilization, associated joint injury, and extensive surgical dissection. You will treat these patients with rehab and surgical release as a last resort. Malunion involves malrotation, angulation, and shortening. Surgery is indicated when it's associated with functional impairment. A corrective osteotomy at the malunion site is preferred. However, know that a metacarpal osteotomy can provide a limited degree of correction. Nonunion is uncommon, and know that most are atrophic and associated with bone loss or neurovascular compromise. Surgical options include resection, bone grafting, and plating, as well as ray amputation or fusion. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 25-year-old male injures his left index finger in a tortilla press at work. He is taken to the local teaching hospital where he is diagnosed with a transverse left index finger proximal phalanx fracture. The interossei and central slip work to deform the fracture in what manner, respectively? And the choices are 1. Proximal fragment extension, distal fragment radial deviation, 2. Proximal fragment extension and distal fragment extension, 3. Proximal fragment extension and distal fragment flexion, 4. Proximal fragment flexion and distal fragment flexion, and 5. Proximal fragment flexion and distal fragment extension. The correct answer to this question is 5. Proximal fragment flexion and distal fragment extension. So in a transverse proximal phalanx fracture, an apex volar deformity often develops with proximal fragment flexion and distal fragment extension. To quickly review, proximal phalanx fractures are difficult to treat secondary to displacement at the fracture site and the stiffness following operative treatment. Non-operative management is possible without rotation or angular displacement of the digit. However, less than 60% of active motion is maintained in younger patients following the non-operative management of proximal phalanx fractures. Soft tissue injury may further compromise soft digit mobility. The apex volar angulation at the fracture site, which can be difficult to manage in a closed manner, causes an extension lag at the PIP joint. Vehi et al. performed a cadaveric analysis on extensor lag following proximal phalanx fractures. After the typical apex volar fracture posture, the average slope was 12 degrees of lag for every millimeter of bone tendon discrepancy. In a simulated apex palmar displacement angulation of 16 degrees, the PIP joint lagged by 10 degrees. The authors underscore the importance of establishing the bone tendon relationship following proximal phalanx fractures. The Meals family comprehensively review proximal phalanx fractures. Minimally displaced extraarticular fractures in compliant patients can be buddy taped for four weeks. Unstable fractures, intraarticular fractures, especially longitudinal unicondylar fractures of the proximal phalanx head, should be treated with fixation. Fixation allows for earlier range of motion, which is critical to prevent stiffness. Open reduction internal fixation allows for immediate range of motion at the risk of violating the extensor mechanism. 
the soft tissue sequelae of proximal phalanx fractures may be more significant than the bone injury. Kozin et al. reviewed the operative management of proximal phalanx fractures. These can be treated closed with percutaneous pinning or open reduction internal fixation. Volar, dorsal, or lateral approaches may be used for ORIF. Interfragmentary screws alone can be used in oblique fractures. Soft tissue trauma should be limited as much as possible to optimize range of motion postoperatively. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, proximal fragment extension and distal fragment radial deviation is incorrect as it's possible to develop a rotational deformity, but the classic deforming forces typically cause an apex volar position. Answer 2, proximal fragment extension and distal fragment extension is incorrect as the interossei pull the proximal fragment into flexion while the distal fragment extends from the pull of the central slip. Answer 3, proximal fragment extension and distal fragment flexion is incorrect as this would represent an apex dorsal deformity, which is the opposite of the typical displacement. Finally, answer 4, proximal fragment flexion and distal fragment flexion is incorrect as the interossei pull the proximal fragment into flexion while the distal fragment extends from the pull of the central slip. And moving on to the final question. A 20-year-old male military recruit slams his index finger on a tank hatch and sustains a long oblique proximal phalangeal fracture. An attempt at reduction and immobilization is made in the field by his unit physician assistant and he returns to your office one week later. Indications to treat proximal phalanx fractures operatively include all of the following except, and the choices are 1. Rotational deformity, 2. Greater than 2 millimeters of shortening, 3. 20 degrees of apex volar angulation, 4. 5 degrees of apex dorsal angulation, and 5. Grossly contaminated open fracture. The correct answer to this question is 4, 5 degrees of apex dorsal angulation. So the patient has sustained an oblique proximal phalanx fracture. All of the other choices are operative indications with the exception of a 5 degree apex dorsal angulation. To quickly review, phalanx fractures account for 10% of all fractures and occur most frequently in young men while playing sports. These are generally treated with immobilization like body taping, followed by range of motion exercises. However, indications for surgery include failed conservative management secondary to any rotational deformity, greater than 2 millimeters of shortening, greater than 10 degrees of angulation, open fractures, or displaced intraarticular fractures. For every 1 millimeter of shortening, the PIP joint will develop a 12-degree extensor leg. Also, a 16-degree apex volar malunion is expected to produce a 10-degree extensor lag. Apex volar deformities are the most common displacement pattern for transverse proximal phalanx fractures secondary to the pull of the central slip on the distal fragment and the interossei on the proximal fragment. As such, apex dorsal angulation for proximal phalanx fracture would be atypical. Henry comprehensively reviewed proximal phalanx fractures and preferred methods of stabilization. He noted that closed management should always be considered first, even for unicondylar fractures or proximal phalangeal head fractures. However, he held that bicondylar proximal fractures or comminuted shaft fractures may require plate fixation, transverse or short oblique fractures may be treated with pin fixation, and long oblique fractures are often amenable to fixation with multiple lag screws. Faruqi et al. compared 100 patients with proximal phalangeal base fractures, 50 of which received transarticular pinning, and 50 were treated with extraarticular pinning. The authors found that one half of the patients in both groups experienced loss of flexion, with an average of 20 degrees, at the PIP joint. In addition, a third of both groups had a flexion contracture with an average of 15 degrees. They found no difference in outcomes between the groups. The authors noted that closed pinning minimizes soft tissue disruption and neither method is necessarily superior. 
To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, rotational deformity are poorly tolerated and should be corrected with fixation. Answer two, fracture shortening by greater than two millimeters of shortening would be an operative indication to prevent PIP joint extensor lag. Answer three, 20 degrees of apex volar angulation is incorrect as fracture angulation of greater than 10 degrees apex volar angulation would be an operative indication to prevent PIP joint extensor lag. Finally, answer five, grossly contaminated open fractures necessitate operative management for debridement at which time the fracture should be stabilized. That's all for this review about phalanx fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.